A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. Let us take you to the middle of nowhere where scientists are building the world's largest radio telescope. In the remote Western Australian outback, a hundred miles from the nearest homestead and with only wedge-tailed eagles, kangaroos and termites for company, astronomers and engineers are preparing the ground for the gigantic square kilometre array telescope. Two precursors are already in operation. The Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP, with its 36 dishes, and the nearby Murchison Widefield Array that looks like an army of spider-like aliens. ASCAP Director Anthony Schinkel takes me on a tour. Murchison is the district, the shire that we're in here in Western Australia. The Murchison Shire is about 40,000 square kilometres, and the population of that shire on the 22 pastoral stations here is about 110 people. 40,000 square kilometres, to give you some relativity, is about the size of the Netherlands, population 17 million, or about twice the size of the state of Massachusetts, population 6.5 million. So you get a sense that it's incredibly isolated out here. The most important thing about it is that it's a radio quiet zone. Exactly. Basically, everything we do these days with electricity generates radio frequency interference. If there's people there, they've got phones, computers, cars, refrigerators. All of those things generate radio frequency interference. And so to a first order, if you can get away from people, you can get away from radio frequency interference. So this region is just one of the most remote, most low population density anywhere in the world. So it's really excellent for, from that perspective. So the telescope we're working towards now, ASCAP, is... Uh, consists of 36 12-metre dishes, antennas, and uh, spread across about a 6-kilometre diameter circle. Its purpose is, uh, well, multifold, of course. One is to demonstrate this site. One is to demonstrate the technology that we think is particularly interesting in radio astronomy. And, of course, the third is to do science. ASCAP's very much designed as a, a primary uh, instrument for science um, that, independent, in the sense, of what happens with SKA, we decided when this project started back in 2007 that the telescope had to be a new, unique science instrument in its own right. One of the problems with radio astronomy is that to map the sky, you basically have to point the telescope at a single point and then to map the next point move to the next point, then move to the next point. Radio telescopes really could only see single places on the sky. They couldn't image in an in a easy way. So what we've done is develop the first ever radio camera. So we can see on the sky an area about 30 square degrees or about 150 times the size of the full moon. So instead of having to slowly move the telescope around to map an area of the sky, this telescope can look up and take effectively a snapshot and see a huge area in a single image. My name's Leonie Boddington, I'm the Aboriginal Liaison Officer for CSIRO. So you've been talking to people here who live, I say locally, but really the next settlement is, what, 100 kilometres away from yes. here, <laughs> from yeah. the site. 
Who are the people whose land it is? The land we own is, uh, belongs to the Wajri people, and Wajri is their language as well. Can we walk up to the dish over there, number four? Yep. Because I understand that they also, each of these dishes has been named after, after a native animal. Probably not a native animal. We just put together a few Wajri words, which then a group of people chose to use for the antennas. You've got Bundra, which means star. You've got Willara, moon. Yalabidi, Emu, Marlu, a red kangaroo. Nyingari is a zebra finch. They're like our little messengers, so we say a Nyingari. Yagu is a mother. Ngobanu is dingo. So just letting us inside this. What do you call it? A tower? What do you call it? Bottom part I call of a dish. Them antennas. Yeah, but the bottom part that we're just walking into is that pedestal. Pedestal. We're going okay. Into the pedestal of the antenna. And this one is called bimba. Bimba. This is edible. the watery name for edible gum. All right. Okay. Okay, so we go into the pedestal. I guess the first thing you can hear is a humming noise, which is the fans in the drive system. So up on the platform up there, we have the drive system, which uh, drives, basically controls the motors on the antenna. This is a three-axis antenna, so you've got azimuth, elevation and then what we call the polarity axis and so for azimuth there's two motors for elevation there's two motors and the polarity axis has one motor so that box controls five motors on the antenna what controls how it's moved through optic fibers the commands will come from the main computers in the control with their wide angle lenses pointed upwards the escap dishes are 30 times more efficient in surveying the sky giving astronomers like lisa harvey smith a whole new view of the universe what that allows you to do is to go back to areas of the sky again and again and survey things that are flashing on and off or changing or disappearing or appearing or exploding. And this allows us to study things like black holes, uh, exploding stars and things we haven't discovered yet. And that's the real key because the things that we don't know we're going to find yet, that's always what wins the Nobel Prizes. This is new science. We can't even predict. Are they tuning into particular frequencies? They are, yeah. We tune it just like a regular radio. You would tune into different radio stations. We tune our radio telescope into different frequencies or different cosmic radio stations to listen to different things. So we might tune to 1600 megahertz to look at hydroxyl molecules, special molecules that emit radio waves in space and study young forming stars. Or we might tune it to 1420 megahertz, which is a cosmic station that tells us about the gas in galaxies. So there's lots of different radio stations that we can tune into that tells us about what's happening in the universe. Not far from ASCAP is another radio telescope that looks very different. Instead of large dishes, this site is a maze of hundreds of small spider-like antennae. My name is Randall Waith. I'm the director of the Murchison Widefield Array, or MWA, radio telescope. We're here in the core of the MWA, and you can see that there's a team now installing new tiles. These are our antenna tiles for the phase two upgrade of the MWA telescope. So you call each of them tiles. Right. How many of them are there in one of those squares and then how many squares and how much bigger will it get? Right, so the, the square, that whole thing is a tile, it's our antenna oh. tile and each one of the little spider-like things, robot spider things that you see in the middle is a, a dipole antenna. So the total MWA has 128 tiles and 2048 of these dipole antennas 
And we're currently in the process, as you can see, of expanding the MWA in, a, in what we're calling Phase 2, uh, and we're adding 128 more tiles, so we'll double the sensitivity of the telescope. And about two-thirds of those new tiles are going into this compact hexagonal configuration that you can see here, and about a third of them will be going to long distances to improve the spatial resolution of the telescope. And are they tuned into something completely different compared to the antenna that we saw earlier? Yes, yeah, so the ASCAP antennas are tuned to about a 1 gigahertz frequency range, so wavelengths that are about 20 centimetres or so. The MWA is a low-frequency telescope, so it's, it's the official precursor of SKA-low, which means it's on the same site and it works at the same frequency as SKA-low. And these antennas are sensitive to low-frequency radiation, so from about 70 to 300 megahertz. So that's the kind of the same frequency range that FM radio and TV and things like that is uh, broadcast in, which is why we're out here in the middle of nowhere. So we're far away from broadcasts and where the, the radio environment is pristine. To keep the site a radio-quiet zone, there's no internet, no mobile phones, no Wi-Fi, and the few people who work there live behind double doors in a building that has been wrapped in metal sheets to act as a Faraday cage. And all this so that these dishes and antenna can tune into the faintest radio hum from the universe in search of alien life and the cosmic dawn. What are they tuning into? The whole universe. Everything, the MWA can see everything from the low ionosphere that surrounds our Earth and how that's behaving, which of course if you're in radio or defence or other communications you care a lot about that. So we see everything from a few hundred metres to the edge of the universe with the MWA. Now that's a bit of a glib answer. So there are big science projects on both telescopes. Both of them are looking at early galaxies to be more specific. We're looking at pulsars, which are these strange stars that have this beamed emission, which we can time very accurately in our own galaxy. And so both telescopes have their strengths and their particular design features. Galaxy evolution or origins of galaxies is one of the questions that you're hoping to answer, not just with the precursors now, but when the square kilometre array comes to the site as well. How would you do that? The underpinning philosophy of the Square Kilometre Array, um, going back more than 20 years now, when I very first heard about it, was that it needed to be the hydrogen telescope. It's the hydrogen telescope simply because that's the most abundant element in the universe. It drives all stars in their early phases, like our star, it's hydrogen, it's burning away. And so the history of hydrogen is the history of the universe and the history of all galaxies. So the SK will do that in a number of ways. It will basically be able to map whole um, immature galaxies like our own out to a certain point. And beyond that, it will be able to detect hydrogen, you know, even in its earliest form at this epoch of reionization. So this I would describe as the cosmic dawn. That might be a, another way of describing this. That's is the right. First light, so, really. so the first light is the first lighting up, the first burning of hydrogen. And its effect, if you like, in the plasma of the universe at that time is not really to create galaxies, but it's to burn bubbles in the universe. And it's, it's the effect of that reionization, which we can still detect in the radio. We don't need stars in radio astronomy. We just need 
um, transitions of, of hydrogen, and it turns out that hydrogen emits uh, 21 centimeters, the spin flip of the two, two constituents of hydrogen. Don't worry about that, but the 21 centimeters at the very distant universe, by the time that uh, emission has traveled or, or aged through the universe, it's now meters in wavelength. And that's what these very low frequency telescopes can detect. And it is amazing, I mean, that, that emission has traveled or it lived that long, and we can actually detect it here and at Baladi, which is this phenomenally pristine site, and we can observe through the passband that you're probably listening to this radio interview on, which is the FM radio band. Can you give a time frame to this? When you go back to this first light, the first ionization of hydrogen atoms, how far back are we talking? Uh, most of the age of the universe. Okay, so the universe we live in is about 13.8 billion years old. Now, in real money, that's 13.8 thousand million years old, if that makes any more sense to you. The point is, let's, let's call it a teenager. Okay, so it's a 14-year-old teenager in billions of years. The epoch of reionization and the cosmic dawn that you alluded to are probably in its first four to six months of its life. So it's the baby phase, it's the cute baby phase. So that's how far back we're looking. And, and the scale factor of the universe would have been a lot smaller and hotter. And certainly our galaxy and Earth you know, didn't exist. Apart from looking at the birth of galaxies or formation of galaxies, evolution of galaxies, this could also really answer another big question of whether Einstein was right. Indeed. So is, is general relativity, you know, the whole picture? Is it the complete picture? Does it apply on all scales and to all extremes? We, we have a wonderful laboratory on this planet. We can build wonderful laboratories like the Large Hadron Collider. But we do have limits to the energy range, the physics that we can physically probe here. So what astronomy allows us to do is go and observe basically laboratories of these extreme objects and extreme uh, physical constraints that we will never access probably on this planet. It is the largest science project at the moment and one of the largest ICT projects in the world. New Zealand is one of the founding members of the SKA project. Even though we won't have any of the dishes here, Andrew Enzo, a computer scientist at the Auckland University of Technology, says New Zealand stands to benefit by focusing on developing processes to manage and analyse the unprecedented flow of data. And that means we're involved in the design, then we'll get involved in the construction, and then the radio astronomers will come along in 2023 and do their science as part of the observation cycle for the next 50 years. So for New Zealand, it's really our first foray into a mega science project right from the very beginning. So it's quite a unique opportunity for New Zealand, quite a different thing for us to be doing. What specifically will be the involvement, though? Is it about the data crunching? Is it about the analysis? Is it about the fishing out the best signal out of it? Because we're a member country, we're involved in various areas of uh, processing of the data. So at the moment, we're designing a computer system Basically, we'll take the data in what's called the central signal processor, and it does a lot of uh, work behind bringing the data together from all the different dishes. And so physically, that is the supercomputer that's on site? That's the supercomputer essentially on site. So it's very much a high data throughput machine. It must run 24-7 real-time, enormous data rates. And this is really the blast furnace end of those data rates. So it's called the central signal processor. 
it's put on site at the core of the site. Um, because the data rates are so high, you don't want to be transmitting that data around the world. And because of those computer systems are on site, power's a major concern because we don't have uh, mains power supply, particularly in Western Australia. So power costs us a lot of money, so we have to do very energy-efficient computing on it. We can't really buffer the data much because the data rates will drown us, so we must be able to process everything very efficiently on the fly. And then what we do is we shift that data off to a more commodity supercomputing system, and that's where the science data processing happens. And then we do a very long-term processing, and we're still developing a lot of new algorithms around there, so it's a very highly parallel operation, and we use many computers or running in parallel to actually process the data, and at the end of, say, six-hour observation, we dump out what's called an image cube, so a snapshot of the sky at different frequencies. And that's where the radio astronomers come along and astrophysicists and they get excited by the images and they study that and look at polarisation effects or effects at what's happening in that part of the sky at different frequencies. How do you go about it? What do you look for in a sea of data like that? So there are various parts to the processing pipeline. So all the data gets processed, so we try not to throw away data. All the data ends up going to the imaging pipeline where it will get imaged, but along the way actually we do some other processes in parallel. One is looking for pulsars. So what we're trying to do over the next few years when the telescope's operational is we're going to do a big survey of the sky and detect a lot of pulsars. And pulsars are quite interesting in terms of science because they've got a very dependable pulse period. So the rapidly spinning neutron stars sending off radiation in a particular direction. As they rotate around, we get a little blip from that pulsar. Very dependable, very good timing, and it's a, a way of having a very accurate clock somewhere out there in the universe, and particularly around near the horizon of a black hole or somewhere of strong gravitational field. So it gives them a way of measuring time around that strong gravitational field. That's one of the things we're, we're looking for, and that's a key thing with phase one of the SKA, is actually detecting a lot of pulsars. And that was Andrew Ensor at AUT. Before that, you've heard from Carol Jackson, the Director of Science at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy at Curtin University, and her colleague Randall Waith. ASCAP project scientist Lisa Harvey-Smith, the CSIRO's Indigenous Liaison Officer Leonie Boddington, and ASCAP Director Anthony Schinkel. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.